0: What's going on? What?
1: What? Hello? Hello?
2: Hello David. I'd like to play a game. You've had far too good a time in North America and you keep bragging about it on the show. You have to realise what life is like for those of us left at home. The desk you now find yourself at contains data from the Ogle Telescope in Chile. If you find the faint mic connecting bit from a planet going around a star, you win. You get to go home.
0: No, what?
1: If not,
2: you'll be sitting
1: here,
2: listening to the Juddcast forever. Your choice. The time is ticking, though.
1: The door locks when the show ends. The Juddcast. We Dare You Again, with Megan Argo, David Alt, John Field, Jen Gupta and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, October 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast and today on the show we have Jen and Megan. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. And uh, we are actually recording this before Jodpub, so hello to anyone we haven't met yet, but we will have met by the time this show goes out.
3: Um, I love how I can write anything there, and you'll read it out?
1: You could indeed write it and read it. I, I read scripts. I'm an actor. I'm terribly sorry. However, in the show this time we have our usual round of interviews, one from Manchester and one from New York, and we find out what you can see in the night sky in October. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
4: In the news this month. Water vapour in the atmosphere of a carbon star. And new results from the upgraded Hubble Space Telescope. Stars less than roughly nine times as massive as the Sun are generally not massive enough to end their lives as supernovae, evolving instead to become what is known as asymptotic giant branch stars. During the main part of its life, a star fuses hydrogen at high temperatures and pressures in the core, forming helium. When the hydrogen is exhausted, The core contracts and the temperature increases, until the helium begins to burn. Once the helium in the core is also used up, the core once again shrinks, while the helium in a shell surrounding the core begins to burn. At this stage in a star's life, it is known as an asymptotic giant branch, or AGB star. One class of AGB stars are carbon stars, so called because their spectra show numerous lines corresponding to the presence of carbon. From chemical models, such stars were predicted to have little or no water in their atmospheres, so the unexpected discovery in 2001 of water in the spectrum of a carbon star, known as IRC-10216, was attributed to the possible presence of a population of orbiting comets or other icy bodies, which were heated as the star brightened. Now, in a study published in Nature on the 2nd of September, an international team have provided evidence which is further challenging our understanding of the chemistry in these stars. Using the Herschel Infrared Satellite, the team observed IRC-10216, and found not just one spectral line corresponding to water, as in the previous observations, but dozens, both in the infrared and submillimeter parts of the spectrum. While the 2001 detection implied the presence of water in a comparatively cool region, some of the newly observed lines correspond to temperatures of around 1000 Kelvin, implying water is present in the inner regions of the star's envelope, a highly surprising result. As well as strong evidence for many other molecules, including carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide and ammonia, The observations show the first evidence in the envelope of a carbon-rich AGB star of para-H2O, water molecules in which the spins of the protons are opposite instead of aligned, as in ortho-H2O. The temperature of the water vapour implied by the observations suggests that the water is present in the inner part of the envelope surrounding the star, ruling out the suggestion that the water is present only in the outer envelope due to a population of cometary or cometary-like bodies. The likely mechanism, according to the authors, is the penetration of ultraviolet photons deep into the star's atmosphere due to a clumpy structure in the outer layers. These photons could cause the dissociation of molecules such as carbon monoxide and silicon oxide which contain oxygen atoms. Water then forms through simple reactions with hydrogen in the surrounding stellar atmosphere. This model fits the observational results including the higher than expected abundance of other molecules such as ammonia but requires a very clumpy circumstellar medium highlighting that there is still a lot to learn about the chemistry and atmospheres of these evolving stars. Most supernovae occur in other galaxies at vast distances from the Earth, making detailed observations, required to understand the physics, difficult. The closest supernova explosion in modern times was that of SN 1987A, which was observed in the Large Magellanic Cloud, a dwarf galaxy orbiting the Milky Way, on the twenty third of February 1987, and was the brightest seen from Earth since Kepler's supernova of 1604. Events like these are important to understand in the context of galaxy evolution, as supernovae inject large amounts of both energy and heavy elements into the surrounding environment and can trigger further star formation. Located just 160,000 light-years away, SN 1987A provided a perfect opportunity to study a supernova in detail and to watch the transition from supernova to expanding remnant as the shockwave interacts with the surrounding gas of the interstellar medium. Numerous studies of SN 1987A have been made using the Hubble Space Telescope from its launch in 1990 until the failure of the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph in 2004. Now, a team led by Kevin France at the University of Colorado have used instruments on the rufo Telescope to compare the shock emission in 2010 with data taken in 2004. The fast-moving material ejected by a supernova moves outwards from the site of the explosion, interacting with the surrounding material of the interstellar medium and creating a blast wave. Also known as a forward shock, which propagates outwards. The pressure of the layer of hot shocked gas created by the forward shock also creates another shock wave that travels back into the ejected material, known as a reverse shock. This simple structure is disturbed in real supernovae by variations in the density of the surrounding gas. In the case of SN 1987A, the shock expanded until it hit a relatively dense equatorial ring of material thought to be the result of a mass loss event on the progenitor star, which occurred some 20,000 years before the explosion. This ring of material reflected the shock back into the debris from the explosion. Over the years, observations have shown this 1.3 light-year diameter ring develop into a series of 30 bright knots, and the new observations with the HST show that the emission from these shocked regions is still increasing, while the maximum velocities of the material in the shocks is decreasing. The results, published in Science magazine on September 24th, are consistent with theoretical predictions describing how supernovae interact with their immediate galactic environment. It is expected that over the next few years, these individual-shocked hotspots will grow and merge together, eventually forming one giant glowing circle. The new data, together with further observations monitoring the continued evolution of the SN 1987A remnant as it develops, will help determine how the energy deposited in such explosions alters both the dynamics and chemical composition of the galactic environment. And finally, the Einstein at Home distributed computing project has discovered a new pulsar, the first discovered by volunteer computing efforts. Like the SETI at Home project, Einstein at Home uses the idle time of a vast network of home computers to search through datasets for specific signals. In this case, the primary goal is the detection of gravitational waves from rapidly spinning neutron stars but since 2009, some of the computing time has also been used to search data from the 305-metre Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, looking for the signatures of pulsars. On July the 11th, 2010, Pulsar J2007-2722 was discovered by a computer using the Einstein at Home software. Follow-up observations were carried out with telescopes around the world, including the Green Bank Telescope in the US, the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank in the UK, the Effelsberg radio telescope in Germany, and Arecibo in Puerto Rico. The observations confirmed that J2007 plus 2722 has a period of 24 milliseconds, rotating more than 40 times a second. It is located at an approximate distance of 17,000 light-years, but has no known X-ray or gamma-ray counterpart, and is not associated with either a supernova remnant or a globular cluster, making it somewhat unusual.
1: Thanks for that, Megan. Now, this week, Megan and Jen have been at the EVN, or European VLBI Network, meeting in Manchester. So, uh, Megan, would you like to tell us what it's all about?
4: Yeah, well, it's a get-together, which happens every two years, of astronomers that use, um, or are part of, the European Network of radio telescopes. So, there's quite a few of them around Europe, and uh, it does quite a lot of exciting science. So, once every couple of years, everybody gets together to tell each other what they've been doing, and come up with new ideas for use of the telescopes and to find out what developments would be going on on the technical
3: side as well. And go to the pub. And, yes, go to the pub. Going for a beer seems to be an integral part of the EVN meeting. Absolutely. It wouldn't be an EVN meeting without a trip to the pub.
1: Is that all?
4: (laughs) Well, some of the most exciting things that we saw at this meeting, there was uh, a talk about uh, tracking spacecraft with um, radio telescopes, which was really quite interesting, because normally it's done with uh, telescopes that are owned by NASA or ESA. Um, But the telescopes that are normally used for radio astronomy can be used for it as well. And there were some quite interesting observations they'd done where they'd actually been able to track um, the Huygens probe as it went through the atmosphere of Titan. And they'd actually been able to measure wind speeds on Titan using radio telescopes.
3: Yeah, they also tracked the Mars Phoenix lander. um, But unfortunately, NASA don't seem to be taking them up on this.
4: Yeah, Yeah. they, they seem to prefer their own systems to... The, yeah. the VLBA and the EVM, which is strange because the the they what they actually presented was the accuracies of the different methods, and it turns out to be just as accurate, if not more so, in a lot of cases than what they're currently doing. So mm. um, we also saw some of the first images from a whole series of new telescopes that are just coming online. So um, here in the UK, obviously there's, there's the Merlin upgrade, so we've now got E-Merlin, and we saw the very first image that's been taken with all six telescopes of E-Merlin. So they looked at the uh, an object called the double quasar, so it's uh, two-point sources and then a big jet of emission off to one side, and it looked like a really good image, so emailing looks like it's, it's working really well. Um, there were also images from the first few stations of the ALMA array, which is uh, being built in the Atacama Desert down in Chile, um, so these were the first ALMA test images. So they've only got seven telescopes on the site at the moment, out yep. of 50.
3: We have to say they are test images. they not Lang, ALMA images. Yeah, yes, he's not, not allowed to say images. that ALMA.
4: <laughs> so they're, they're test images. Um, but that was very nice. That was uh, an image of uh, the starburst galaxy NGC 253, which is in the southern hemisphere, obviously, because ALMA is in the southern half of the, the world. So um, it was a, a southern starburst. Um, and we also saw some of the first images from the LOFAR telescope, uh, which is the low-frequency array that's um, being built in, well, mainly in the Netherlands, but does have some outstations around the rest of Europe as well.
3: Yeah, and the the station in the UK, which is down in Chilbolton near Winchester, the opening ceremony for that was actually earlier this week. So we're hoping we'll try and get an interview with someone about that for a future show.
1: So tell us then a, a little bit about the interview that you got for this show.
3: So I spoke to
4: Dr Anthony Rushton, who works for the European Southern Observatory, about... Interferometry, how radio telescopes are connected together, something that has been covered on the JODCAST several times before. And we also talked about uh, microquasars and black holes. Okay, so I'm talking to Dr. Antti Rushton, who works for the European Southern Observatory. So whereabouts are you based?
2: Well, at the moment, the uh, eso is, uh, as we call it, have, based, have got me based at the Onsala Space Observatory near Gothenburg in Sweden.
4: Okay, what kind of telescopes have you got?
2: Well, basically, the observatory, there are two uh, largest uh, radio telescopes. There's a 25-metre dish that's used for VLBI observations in the EVN. So,
4: VLBI is very long baseline interferometry?
2: Yes, that's right. It's, it's a technique we use across Europe to link together some of the, the largest radio telescopes um, uh, to increase the collecting area and increase the resolution.
4: So, EVN stands for European VLBI Networks, so we've got... Acronyms within, in, inside acronyms. That's right,
2: it's, 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 a bit, it's a fortunate acronym in an acronym. Originally, uh, VLBI, or Very Long Baseline Interferometry, was a technique of just linking t- uh, two or three telescopes together. What happened in Europe is, at the, the end of the 90s, a uh, few of the observatories and countries around uh, Europe decided to get together and form one community known as the European VLBI Network.
4: So, what are the telescopes participate in the network?
2: Well, there's quite a few telescopes uh, scattered across Europe, and now we also include telescopes uh, from China and uh, down, in, uh, down in Africa. But across Europe, the, the some of the main largest telescopes in, include the 100-metre telescope in Effelsberg in, in Germany. There's also the 25-metre telescope at uh, Onsula in, in Sweden, where uh, I work. And, of course, uh, the famous Merlin Array-based, uh, controlled at Jodl Bank, uh, regularly participates in some of the um, uh, the EVN uh, sessions.
4: The EVN doesn't observe all year round, does it? It only works for parts of the year?
2: No, it, it, that's what's right. It requires quite a lot of cooperation and coordination between all the different European uh, radio astronomers. Quite a lot of the telescopes, um, like for example the e telescope at Jodl Bank, quite often spends most of the time of the year operating independently. And we have about uh, two or three uh, block sessions of uh, a few weeks uh, where all the telescopes get together and, and forms this mighty super-telescope known as the European VLBI network.
4: So it's a very big cooperative effort, so it must take a lot of organisation.
2: Oh, Absolutely, and it's taken quite a few years to to plan um, uh, how the uh, the telescopes should work together. And it also requires a lot of effort um, on behalf of the astronomers to make sure that each of these telescopes are pointing in the same uh, direction. So much so that we, we've even gone and created a base for, the, the for VOBI astronomy in Europe, known as JIVE, which stands for the Joint Institute for VLBI Astronomy in Europe, which coordinates uh, all these activities and makes sure all these telescopes point together. Because if you think about it, these are some of the, the largest telescopes, if not the largest telescopes across Europe. You've got to make sure that all that metal and steel are all pointing at the same point in the sky.
4: So do they look after the data that comes back from the telescopes as well?
2: Uh, yes, that's right. They're, they, they're not only do they coordinate the, the schedule of uh, where and, most importantly, when the telescope should be pointing uh, in the sky, but it's their responsibility to bring the data back. And there's a huge amount of, of data that is generated at each of the individual telescopes. Each telescope moves the data back to Jive uh, in the Netherlands. And we've now two different methods that we use to move the data back. We originally uh, placed all the data from each telescope and recorded it on hard disks uh, in each of the telescopes, and we just posted the data to the, uh, to the Jive Institute, where we then played back the, um, the data into a supercomputer known as the Correlator. In the last few years, we've been taking advantage of the very rapid growth of the Internet across Europe, and we've been linking the, the telescopes together to Jive using extremely fast Internet connections. So while at home we typically have internet connections of uh, a few uh, tens or hundreds of megabits per second, we've had to link each telescope to Jive at at least one gigabit per second. So they get a very, very fast internet connection. That's a lot of data. Yes, precisely. Uh, But it also saves a lot on recording disks.
4: So this week in Manchester there's been a meeting of astronomers who use this network of telescopes so they've all been presenting some of the the exciting science results that they've been getting out of the instrument. What kind of work have you been doing with it?
2: Well I'm particularly interested in black holes that that live in the Milky Way galaxy. So black holes that are uh, relatively close by to us and emit very strong x-ray and radio emission. And I'm very interested in trying to understand how when some matter falls into uh, the black hole how a very small fraction of that matter can get kicked out in the form of a particle jet, which then emits radio emission. My research focuses on having a look at the, the very, very tiny details uh, around the uh, the black hole and have a look at how the particles get accelerated away from the, uh, from the black holes uh, and move out um, into, the, the, into the galaxy. And it's also very important to try to relate that, emi- uh, that um, those properties to how the, the X-ray uh, emission, the X-ray photons, flicker and change.
4: OK, so how close to the black hole can you actually get with the LBI? Can you actually see the black hole?
2: Well, for the very nearby black holes that we can see, we can get down to extremely uh, close distances away from the black hole. We believe we can see radio emission that comes from the equivalent of uh, about uh, a few astronomical units away from the, the black hole and track the, the radio emission coming from the, the particles that are accelerated up to near the speed of light and track these, uh, these, uh, these particles as they, they move away uh, by many, many um, tens or even hundreds of AU away from the, uh, from the black hole.
4: That's pretty close, so that's just a few times the, the Earth's distance from the Sun that you can see material around the black hole. Yes, that's right, and,
2: and in fact in some of these systems um, we believe we can uh starting to see the, the orbital motion of the black hole uh, around another system. So if we have a black hole that's been fortunate enough to remain in a binary system because of course black holes come about due to very massive stars which when they get to the end of their lifetime they explode and form supernovas leaving a, a compact black hole in the centre of the system, if the, that explosion doesn't destroy a companion star that's in orbit with it, then that companion star can remain in a binary orbit transferring matter onto the black hole. Using the, the very high angular resolution techniques used in VLBI, we now believe we can start to see some of the, the orbital motion and the behaviour of the black hole around the, uh, the companion star.
4: So these are stellar mass black holes, these are not the supermassive black holes that you find in the centres of galaxies.
2: That's right. I mean, we, we we're starting to see um, many black holes all over the universe at various different uh, scales and sizes. So we're talking about here the, the, the black holes that have about 7 to 15 times the mass of our own sun inside the black hole. And as we move further and further out into the universe, we start to see bigger and bigger black holes. The, the closest uh, very large black hole, or what we call a supermassive black hole, when the, the, the mass of the uh, the black hole is, or the order of a million times, our sun, um, the closest uh, supermassive black hole is, of course, our galactic centre, which seems to be the the point where all the stars in the galaxy and all the gas in the Milky Way galaxy orbit around. This supermassive black hole is of particular interest to, um, to radio astronomers because... Due to its relative proximity and its relative size, we believe that uh, we, in the next 10 to 15 years will be able to start resolving the event horizon of the, the black hole in the, the, the centre of the uh, Milky Way. An event horizon comes about because um, the, the density of the, the centre of the black hole is so, so large that at that radius away from the centre of the black hole not even light can escape from the black hole. After, the, um, after the, the black hole that's in the, in the centre of uh, our Milky Way galaxy, we can then start looking at some of the black holes that are in our nearby uh, uh, neighbouring galaxies, uh, such as a very famous um, relatively uh, near galaxy called M82. These types of galaxies are believed to have very many active regions and uh, are populated by many, many um, uh, black holes of a range of different masses. One of the very exciting results that was presented uh, this week was in two of the the nearby galaxies, namely M82 and a galaxy called ARP220, we're starting to believe that we can uh, directly see um, the stellar mass black holes in these extragalactic sources. And because um, these sources are relatively small on the sky compared to our entire Milky Way... We can, uh, we, can lo- uh, we can watch these, um, uh, these, these nearby galaxies and we can view all the different black holes uh, all at the same time. And we can start watching the, the variability in all the, 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 these uh, sources uh, in galaxies such as M82 and uh, op 220
4: Okay, so these galaxies are, are very active. They're forming lots and lots of stars. And it's that star formation that's creating these black holes?
2: Yeah, precisely. These are very special uh, galaxies, they're not like the Milky Way galaxy. Um, In uh, star formation uh, galaxies, um, we have a lot of very high massive stars that are constantly formed due to various properties such as the density um, of clouds that are in the galaxy. This co- consequently creates more supernova explosions that we, we can observe and track with, with telescopes such as the, the E. Merlin Telescope at Jodrell Bank and the uh, European VLBI network across Europe. And with a large number of stars exploding, we get a large number of black holes populating the, uh, the galaxy. So th- these uh, starburst galaxies are very special because of the sheer number of extremely compact and high-energy events that are going on.
4: So by looking at galaxies that are further away and, and watching these populations, does it tell you something about the, the history of the galaxies?
2: Well, yes, precisely. we we're, The further and further out we look at uh, galaxies, we seem to find one common feature I- in the centre of uh, all, uh, all galaxies. We believe that nearly all galaxies are populated by a supermassive black hole at the very centre. And that black hole in the centre of the, the galaxy seems to be directly related to the, the actual size of the galaxy that we see. So we were currently trying to understand how does the central black hole start to form. Do these small stellar mass black holes that we see in the Milky Way galaxy and uh, in M82, do they collide together to form supermassive black holes which then shape the size and evolutionary history of, of the galaxy?
4: Okay, so these supermassive black holes that are in the cores of other galaxies are obviously quite a long, long way away. But the, the microquasars that you're studying are, are a lot closer. They're within our galaxy.
2: Yes, that's right. The the, the, the galaxy, the supermassive black holes we see in our nearby galaxies are in the order of uh, a few megaparsecs away in distance. While the uh, the microquasars that we see in the Milky Way galaxy... Uh, they're much closer, and um, they're, they're at, at least as close as the, the, the centre of the galaxy. So they're in the order of between 1 to 10 kiloparsecs away.
4: Okay, so the work you were presenting at the conference was on Cygnus X1?
2: Yes, that's right, a, um, uh, an X-ray source in the Cygnus constellation.
4: So that's within the Milky Way galaxy, that's a local microquasar.
2: Yes, and um, Cygnus X1 uh, is actually one of the v- closest by a black hole sources that uh, we have to, to the Earth. In fact, it's, it's at a distance of just less than two kiloparsecs away, making it extremely close in black hole terms.
4: And it's, it's not just a single black hole, it's, it's actually orbiting a, a star?
2: That's right, it, it's uh, in uh, companion with uh, a binary star, and the binary star in this particular um, uh, this system uh, is a very high-mass uh, star. So the mass of um, of the, the star in Cygnus X1 has a solar mass of about 20 times that of uh, our own star, while the mass in the black hole in Cygnus X1 only has a mass of about 7 or 8 um, times our Sun. This has the, the interesting result of it being a black hole, which is almost uh, effectively in orbit of uh, another star. And that star, because of its giant size, creates a very strong stellar wind. So a large amount of the, the atmosphere of that star is being blown out in all different directions. And part of that uh, wind intersects with the black hole, forming a disk around the black hole, and an accretion disk, which is producing the, the very strong X-ray emission that we see.
4: Okay, and is this this quite unusual, because you normally think about things orbiting black holes rather than black holes orbiting other things?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Most um, black holes, um, such as the example of the supermassive black hole in the centre, has virtually everything else in the galaxy orbiting around it. But in Cygnus X1, we have this unusual situation where the, the centre of mass isn't dominated by the black hole. This has some interesting consequences, if you think, therefore, about the the orbital motion of the black hole around uh, around its star. Using the technique of VLBI and the European VLBI network, we can then have a look at this very tiny detail of the behaviour of the black hole around the companion star. We believe that the radio emission comes about from the emission that originates very close to the black hole, when a jet is turned off and by studying the, the, uh, the x-ray behavior and what the spectrum of the, the x-ray looks like we can try to uh, understand when the jet is present when the, the jet's been turned off we've been having a, recently having a look at some observations that we took over uh, over summer 2010 when the uh, most of the jet was turned off t- giving us a very precise position or what we call astrometry of where the black hole. Actually, is in the the orbit around the that this high mass star, and we're starting to st- uh, see the actual behaviour, of the motion of the black hole around the star, because of the extremely high uh, resolution, we can separate the distance of about one AU at a distance of two kiloparsecs, as where this where X One is located. So
4: is the star visible in in other wavelengths? Presumably, while this thing is is bright in the x-rays and the radio, can you see it in other parts of the spectrum?
2: Yes, you can see x-ray binaries uh, across all the different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. As we, we mentioned, we, it's very bright in the, the X-rays which come from the, the mass falling very close around the black hole. It's also very bright in the, the radio which sometimes comes from these uh, very large jets that are uh, accelerated away from them or sometimes the, the radio emission that comes from just above the, the, the surface of where the matter is falling onto the black hole. We also see it in the optical um, uh, bands as well. But we have problems with uh, X-ray binaries of trying to detect them using optical techniques. There is a lot of um, matter in between the Earth and uh, Cygnus X1, uh, which we call the, the interstellar medium of the Milky Way galaxy. And this causes the, the light emission to become absorbed and scattered. Uh, and effectively, it hides the, uh, the, the emission from the, uh, uh, the, the Cygnus X1. We can just about see this source using infrared observations um, but this is one of the reasons why we, we sometimes go to the radio band as radio emission doesn't get affected by the interstellar medium in the same ways that emission in the, using optical telescopes does.
4: Okay, so what's next in your studies of x one what, what are you planning to do next with this object?
2: Well, we're in the process of commissioning a brand new telescope that looks at a completely new part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And I'd love to have a go at pointing this new instrument that we're building um, at Cygnus X1. So the instrument's called ALMA, which stands for the the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, and that's being built down in Chile by a consortium of um, astronomers around the world based in Europe, North America and East Asia. ALMA is being placed in the Atacama Desert in Chile because it is one of the driest locations in the world. At an altitude of 5,000 metres, we can start going to higher and higher radio frequencies um, up into the uh, microwave band and even into higher frequencies. ALMA will go up into hundreds and several hundreds of gigahertz uh, of frequency, a part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we haven't studied very well on the ground at all. The telescope itself is going to be absolutely huge. It's going to have uh, 50 12-metre antennas up on the the desert there, plus uh, another six uh, telescopes used for uh, just collecting the, the overall emission.
4: Um, so what's the reason for it being located at 5,000 metres? You obviously want to get above as much of the atmosphere, but radio wavelengths, normally the atmosphere doesn't have quite so much of an effect.
2: That's right. In the, uh, using the telescopes at Jodwell Bank, which operate at uh, 6 centimetres or 5 gigahertz, the atmosphere is pretty um, transparent to the radio waves. So the radio waves just happily go through even the, the clouds that are sometimes seen around Manchester and go into the receivers of the telescope quite happily. As you start going into higher and higher radio frequencies, the the atmosphere starts to become opaque. That is, part of the the, the signal that comes from the sky gets absorbed by the water that's in the atmosphere and and stops the the radio waves from reaching the ground. Therefore, we need to put these new sub-millimeter telescopes, such as ALMA, up into extremely high, very dry sites where the atmosphere just becomes transparent again.
4: What kind of things is ALMA going to tell you about these microquasars that other radio telescopes can't?
2: ALMA is going to be very, very special because it can look at the different parts, the different emission mechanisms of where the radio originates from. The radio emission that we see um, using uh, the telescopes as part of the European VLBI network, they typically have a look at uh, a process uh, called synchrotron radiation. This is emission that comes from electrons that are accelerated to near the speed uh, of light uh, and emit most of their radio uh, waves at five gigahertz or or six gigahertz, and they they, they form part of the the jet, the the outflowing particles that come from move away from the the X-ray binary. In the higher and higher radio frequencies, as we move into the millimetre and submillimetre bands of ALMA, we start to see the emission that starts coming from the companion star. This high mass star in Cygnus X1, with basically extremely um, strong winds that fall uh, uh, around a disk of the, of the X-ray binary, the emission from the, the winds of the star... Uh, will be seen in the Alma bands, so we can then relate and try to understand the physics that happens of how the the matter goes from a high mass star to around falls into the accretion disk um, of the black hole, and then connects to the jet and gets accelerated away from the binary system.
4: Okay, well, it all sounds like very exciting stuff, and look forward to seeing the results. Thanks for talking to us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for that, Megan.
1: And if radio interferometry has you slightly befuddled, take a look at the October 2009 interview that Jen and Roy did with Robert Lang, which uh, covers the basics of the system. Now, uh, for our second interview, we are going back over the pond to New York University. And this time I spoke to Professor Anne Zabladoff, who is actually a fellow of the University of Arizona, but was up in New York for the summer, and she is talking about blobs. I'm here with Professor Ann Zabladoff of the University of Arizona, and uh, welcome to the Jodcast.
5: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Now you deal with uh, a lot of mysteries, it seems, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about your work? Yes.
5: I'm- not a detective novelist but there's (laughs) certainly enough to give us job security for many a long year in astronomy Um, (laughs) and in fact it's a really exciting time to be an astronomer because the technology over the last 10 or 15 years has just blossomed to the point where detectors are more sensitive and reaching wavelengths they were unable to do previously telescopes have grown bigger we have things in space that get above our atmosphere and see deeper uh, and lower surface brightness objects than ever before, so um, there are still many mysteries, and mysteries breed more mysteries, but uh, we at least have the hope of uh, advancing some of the knowledge in the field, and one of the mysteries, in which I'm currently working um, in a project that's actually being led by a former student of mine, uh, Eugene Yang, who's doing all the hard work and having all the good ideas, Um, he's at uh, the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy now in Heidelberg, and I've actually just returned from a visit with him, which was very illuminating, (laughs) Um, and also very, very frustrating because there's, again, so much that we don't know, uh, particularly about the high redshift universe, which has just become a little more accessible to us. So um, one of the the things that we have been discussing are the so-called extended Lyman alpha nebulae, which are more colloquially referred to as blobs, (laughs) and uh, they were discovered by Chuck Steidel in his work on Lyman break galaxies not too long ago. And since that time, our knowledge of uh, galaxies at high redshift, and nowadays when we talk about high redshift, we're talking about redshift two, three, four... (laughs) <laughs> and above, um, has grown, but uh, I think faster than our understanding of this extended gas uh, and its emission that we're seeing um, now out to wretches of about three, possibly out to wretches of about six. There have been claims. There is a claim of mm. a detection of one of these hundreds of kiloparsec blobs of gas eliminated somehow and emitting Lyman-alpha radiation at a redshift of around 6.
1: Okay, so what is the composition of these blobs of gas?
5: Well, that's an excellent question. We know they have hydrogen (laughs) based on what they're emitting, but uh, the, the problem is that... Uh, Any other lines have been problematic because the Lyman-alpha line is the strongest line, and that's frequently where these objects are detected. And um, I collaborated on a theoretical paper with Ramil Davé, who's a colleague of mine, and again, Eugene, leading the project, um, in which we really reached hard to find um, uh, examples of other lines that while not as bright as Lyman-alpha, might uh, still be detectable, because one of the problems with Lyman-alpha is it's a resonant line, it's optically thick, and as a result of that, when you detect it, although bright, we don't really know where those photons originated in the system, and they've had some torturous path by which they managed to escape it, finally, but it's not that we literally get to the heart of the matter. We, we don't see through these systems. We don't understand the bulk motions of the gas and the flows in these systems from the Lyman alpha alone. And unfortunately, that's generally all that gets detected. So we've written a paper suggesting, well, let's look at the next most abundant element in the universe, helium, and see whether or not there might be helium lines that would be useful for study that would be optically thin. Um, and also, there are other lines of hydrogen, like H-alpha, hydrogen H-alpha, that are optically thin, are likely, more likely to be, that uh, would be worthwhile to detect. And so one of the projects in which I've been involved is actually to look at infrared wavelengths now for H-alpha to see if that line is detectable, and then compare the H-alpha to Lyman-alpha to try to get a better handle even on the most basic question of whether the gas is more or less in-falling infl- or out-flowing uh, in these blobs. Because there are many, many um, theories at the moment as to what the source of this Lyman-alpha radiation is. Again, we know the extent of the blob is on the order of 100 kiloparsecs or so. So what is that? Why, don't every, why doesn't every galaxy that's observed at high redshift have such a blob of gas around it. Maybe they do. Maybe it's not always illuminated. Maybe um, their environment is such that that gas is not present. So there are a lot of questions. Um, But there are many predictions as to what the source of this Lyman alpha should be, and many of them hinge on whether that gas is principally outflowing or inflowing. So, for example, people think that maybe there's an AGN, in a galaxy in the center of one of these blobs that's photoionizing the environment around it. Maybe there are galactic, or supergalactic winds that are driving shocks that could be uh, exciting this emission. Um, But then there's also a school that suggests that, um, and this is mostly coming from the theoretical community, uh, that there is cooling radiation when there's gravitational infall of gas into, say, a forming galaxy, and that some of that cooling radiation gets channeled into certain emission lines, one of them being Lyman-alpha. So again, you can understand just even knowing whether the gas is flowing out in general or flowing in would help one distinguish among those possibilities, and we don't even know that because Lyman-alpha, again, is the object, that the, the, the line that usually gets detected. So... Um, We've been trying to measure other lines. We have now succeeded in measuring uh, H-alpha in a whopping two (laughs) gloves. It's difficult work. We're using the largest telescopes in the world. Um, And uh, our preliminary results are that there's no dramatic, using very simplistic, I should say, uh, theoretical models, there's no dramatic evidence for big outflows um, or big inflows in in these systems. What we're seeing um, is characteristic of You know, the kind of outflows that some people have claimed on the low end of of lemon break galaxy. So either not much of anything at all or 100 or 200 kilometers per second outflow near the galaxy or galaxies that may be embedded in these blobs. But there's no evidence at the moment anyway for large-scale outflows of the kind that one might need to generate the kind of shocking that people... Say, might produce this emission. And nor do we see dramatic evidence for infall along the nature of cooling radiation. But there are many, many caveats to these statements, and we're working through them and trying to be as comprehensive as possible in um, the work we're writing up now. And that is that we've only got two blobs. There could be geometric effects by which we're missing infall or outflow along certain directions. Uh, once we get up to 5 or 10 blobs, then those kinds of arguments get a little more clear. Um, and, uh, and I think there, there are still questions about what the relevant theoretical models are for the systems when you're trying to model both Lyman-alpha and H-alpha. Lyman-alpha is particularly hard because of these radiative transfer effects, and we don't know where that gas is relative to what's, being, what's emitting the H-alpha, Um, So it's a complicated problem, we're just getting started, Uh, but one of the recent results we have had, which we're slightly more confident of at this point, is that um, when you compare the statistics of the blobs that we've now found through a technique using a specially designed narrow band filter. Eugene designed this filter, we had it made, and it's particularly good at detecting blobs in a narrow redshift window because it's a narrow wavelength filter. And as a result of that, we can choose our favorite redshift, one that is not um, a place in the spectrum where a lot of night sky lines or atmospheric absorption becomes a problem for us. And so you, can, you have some wiggle room in, in choosing the, the appropriate redshift. And once you've done that, in this case, the redshift of about 2.3, uh, you're much more efficient at detecting these extended sources. So it's now possible to find tens or hundreds of these blobs, whereas before, a few bright ones were known. So for the first time you have the opportunity to say this is the number density. Is our volume as well defined because of the narrow band search? Or um, this is the variance in that number density. So I look in one place and I've got this many blobs. They either do or don't pile up in my field and I look in another place and it's a very different count or a similar count. So there's some inherent variance and depending upon that combination of number density and Variance, you can ask yourself if blobs occupy dark matter halos and they all more or less occupy the same mass dark matter halo. What do n body simulations of cosmology then predict the likely halo mass that those blobs occupy is? And what we found is that halo mass tends to be most likely around a 10 to the 13th solar mass halo. And at reaches between 2 and 3, that's hefty. Okay. And so what that suggests is, and, and in fact we know what those halos become in the nearby universe, and they tend to become 10 to the 14th solar mass halos and above. So we really feel that, uh, were this analysis to be correct, we are looking at proto-Virgo clusters proto-even coma clusters.
1: These are are big, big
5: clusters of galaxies. These are big, big clusters of galaxies. They will become what we consider the real tip of the spectrum of the mass function today. And so the galaxies or the fragments of galaxies that we resolve barely with, even Hubble Space Telescope, in the centers of these blobs are probably represent galaxies that are forming in the most overdense environments at the epoch at which we're looking and will probably ultimately merge to become the brightest cluster galaxies today which are the most massive I mean, these giant elliptical galaxies that occupy clusters are the most <laughs> massive galaxies we know about today and there are also the systems by virtue of the fact that these are massive overdensities that presumably collapsed earliest in the history of the universe. So there's still a populations also maybe among the earliest that we can probe. So going both directions in time, back in time and forward in time, these are very interesting systems and so they're definitely worth following up even though it's it's tough a tough business. Um, and and so what we're doing now is we're actually using um, a very sexy new instrument at the Magellan Telescope at Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, which is um, a tunable filter instrument, which actually allows you, again, a very narrow wavelength, but to actually pick that wavelength. So instead of investing $20,000 or $15,000 in a filter representing a particular wavelength, we can, within reason, choose particular wavelengths, again, that are right with respect to not getting contaminated by the night sky. And in this particular case, the sensitivity of this detector and the combinations of filter choices and and things like that um, allow us to certain sweet spots in redshift that are not really well accessible to other instruments, even instruments on even bigger telescopes. They're not 6.5-meter, but might be 8- or 10-meter telescopes in the world today. And so we've really um, been pushing to detect blobs and particularly constrain their statistics uh, now at redshifts of 4, maybe even 5. We haven't done that yet, but we think we have a, a glimmer of hope to, to push this out to higher redshifts. And why that's interesting, again, is is if they are tracing these overdense regions and large-scale structure at any epoch in which you look at them, then pushing them further and further back, it's very interesting from the evolution, from the standpoint of the evolution of large-scale structure, and again, what these will become, but also um, when the first stars, and the early populations of stars at least, got into, variants in fact, got into the environments today that we now see as among the oldest in the universe. So. Um, yeah, we're pretty excited about all this and it's a crowded field and there are a lot of people working on these a lot of big telescope time uh, is being devoted to, to projects like there are different aspects to this project but there's this interesting confluence of data available in the x-ray regime and the uh, IR and the infrared uh, regime and the uh, optical regime now the rest frame EV. I mean there are many things that we're learning that we would have been out of the question just a few years ago. Exciting times ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you're, you're welcome.
3: <laughs> Thanks for that, Dave. You seem to have been on a bit of an interviewing mission while you were over in the States.
1: Well, I, it was a way to get to speak to scientists and, uh, and meet people. And especially go to facilities like Snow Lab. So how could I not?
3: You have to bring that up every single time we do a show, don't you? I am very jealous.
1: (laughs) Yes, I do have to bring it up every single time we do a show. (laughs) (laughs) And someone else who is on a mission to educate everyone about the night sky. Here's Ian Morrison.
6: Well, the night sky for October. Before I start... I'd like to send my regards to Brother Guy, the the Pope's astronomer. I met him at the British Science Fair just recently, and he said it was nice to find the face behind the voice because each month he listens to the Jodcast. And so, I mean, I knew we were covering most of the world. I didn't think we were getting quite so high up. But look, he's written a wonderful book with a colleague. It's called Turn Left at Orion. It's now in its Third edition, I've got editions one and three, and it tells you all the lovely things that there are in the sky to look at with binoculars, your eyes, and a telescope. I do recommend it to you. So that's turn left at Orion. Well, we actually do have a very nice skyscape at this time of year. Fairly high in the southwest, we have that lovely group of constellations, Cygnus, Lyra, and Aquarius. They're bright stars, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra and Altair in Aquarius make up what is called the Summer Triangle. Down to the left of Cygnus a little bit is a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus. Uh, It's not very obvious. You need a dark sky to see it. But uh, with binoculars, it looks very pretty, just like a dolphin leaping out of the sea. But then coming over towards the east and through the south, we have fairly due south in the mid-evening, The Square of Pegasus, the winged horse, the upside-down horse. And um, I'm going to come back to the Square of Pegasus when we talk about one of the highlights of the month. What is not terribly obvious, but well worth looking out, is that just below the square, you see the head, it's called the circlet, of one of the two fishes that make up the constellation Pisces. That sort of spreads out into two, and to the lower left of that, we have the constellation of Cetus the whale, and down to the right of the circled in Pisces, we have Aquarius. If you follow up from Pegasus and a bit over towards the east, you come to the constellation of Pegasus, and up to its right, the lovely W-shaped constellation Cassiopeia. And the thing to do with binoculars is to basically look at the region between Perseus and Cassiopeia, where you should spot a rather lovely so-called double cluster. It's a very lovely object in the sky. And again, we're going to come back to that in our highlights later on. So what about the planets? Well, it's almost a one-planet month. It's not quite as bad as that. But it really is a superb month for observing Jupiter. It's actually risen in the east as soon as the sun has set, And at magnitude minus 2.9, it's really dominating the eastern sky and later the southern sky, and it's visible for much of the night. Now, Jupiter takes about 10 hours to rotate, so if you were really keen, you could almost watch one complete rotation during the night hours, have a chance to see the red spot move around. Now, um, it's actually a very good thing to observe with a telescope at the moment. for The simple reason... That it seems to have hopefully temporarily lost its southern equatorial belt. And um, so whereas we normally saw one dark band above and one below the equator, at the moment we see one is missing. That's actually helped make the so-called great red spot be slightly more obvious, so it's well worth looking for it. And of course, if you've heard any sort of telescope, you can see the lovely little Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, what about Saturn? Saturn actually was in line with the Sun beyond the Sun on the 1st of October, so you can't really expect to see it early on, but at the very, very end of the month, let's say the 31st of October, it's going to be just visible in the morning sky before dawn, and in fact just below the 2.7 magnitude star Gamma Virginis, which is also called Porrima. So if you look with uh, binoculars, you'll see a sort of a, a rather uneven double. Um They're only about uh, a, a, a degree apart, actually, so they'll be really quite close. So it is perhaps worth just having a quick look at Saturn at the end. And one nice thing is that whereas over the last sort of 18 months or so, the rings have been virtually edge on, they're now opening out and in fact have reached 8 degrees. So not only is a little bit more to see, But also, of course, Saturn is going to be slightly brighter overall because you've got more reflecting area. Mars and Venus, they're both perhaps just visible as the sun is setting, but they're very, very low above the horizon. I think on the 9th of October, uh, Venus is very close to a very thin crescent moon. But almost you've got to look for the moon before the sun has set. And that's always a slightly worrying thing. Uh, Do not, with binoculars or anything, look anywhere close to the sun before it's set. So to be frank, although they're theoretically visible and will be visible uh, from more southerly climes where the angle of the ecliptic is at a higher angle to the horizon, I'm afraid where we are in the north is actually not really too worthwhile observing either Venus or Mars. Well that leaves us Mercury. Now a highlight of last month was a very good autumn apparition of Mercury and that's when it sort of gets highest in the sky and best to see and that was before dawn. Well that's pretty well over but in fact for the first two or three days of October then Mercury is still just visible low above the Uh, Eastern horizon just before dawn, and I think on the 1st of October is about 10 degrees elevation as the sun rises. So there is a chance to spot Mercury if you haven't seen it before. But probably it's best to wait until next spring when we should have a good apparition in the evening sky after sunset. Well, finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, I've mentioned there's still a chance to see Mercury. So that's one thing. And on the uh, Night Sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put in Night Sky and Jodrell Bank, you should find it quite easily, I try and put little pictures and diagrams to show you what there is to see. So that's a possibility at the very beginning. I think the real highlight of this month is going to be the fact that we should be able to see a comet. Um, We probably need binoculars, to be honest. It's called Comet Hartley and it was actually discovered in 1986 by someone called Malcolm Hartley. It's not surprising. Its name is 103P, oblique stroke Hartley. That P implies it's a periodic comet, and that's one that comes into the inner solar system regularly, in this case, every six and a half years. This particular apparition is a very good one because it's actually going to pass within 0.12 of an astronomical unit of the earth that's pretty good and that helps make it easy to spot sadly the time at which it gets closest around october the 20th the moon is really getting rather bright it's near full moon so it's probably best to observe it in the early part of the month when the moon isn't being such a problem uh, on the first of the month it is very close to cassia and uh, that's something where I think if you look at the chart, you'll see exactly where to look. It's just in fact by a little v, the base of a V, which we're going to come to a little bit later on. It then moves across past the double cluster, I think that's on the ninth of October, and that should be a wonderful photographic opportunity. a little comet at about five and a half to sixth magnitude, close to the double cluster. It moves off over across Perseus, and then by the 20th, it's very, very close to Capella in our Riga, a very bright star, but as I said, by then, I'm afraid the moon is beginning to be a problem. So I do wish, you know, it's a well worth thing to have a look at. Um, I've been trying to say something about interesting objects on the moon every month, and this month I chose Mons Piton, and also a crater very close to it called Cassini. Um, again, there's a diagram to show you where it is on the on the lunar surface. It's an isolated little mountain about um, 2.3 kilometres high and 25 kilometres across. And in fact, the, the, the picture I've put on the lower right and even on my little uh, chart that shows you where it is, shows the rather nice shadow it actually makes. And this, of course, is how you can measure its height and from that photograph uh, at the top left of my night sky page to do with it uh, i got my students to actually calculate how high the mountain was and they got 2.4 kilometers which is pretty close to 2.3 so it's interesting we can measure the heights of the mountains on the moon and also the heights of some of the lunar of the crater rims by the length of the shadows they subtend we do have a meteor shower this month They're called the Orionids, and the peak is around October the 21st. But if you've been listening, you'll know that that's around the time when the moon is full. So I'm afraid this year it's not really the best year to try and uh, look for them. Um, You may well, however, see the very brightest, and that would be in the hours before dawn. The radiant of the shower hence the name Orion, is is in fact just up to the left of Orion, in fact pretty much on the border with, with Gemini. Um, they're interesting meteors because we think they're associated with comet Halley, and they enter the upper atmosphere at about 41 kilometres per hour and can sometimes leave some very nice, what are called persistent trains, uh, slightly longer-lasting um, streaks of ionised gas in the atmosphere. In fact, the Earth intersects the orbit of Comet Halley twice a year, so we also see them in May, and the shower is then called the Eta Aquarius. So, sadly, not this year the best. Well, finally, we have a nice opportunity in the next couple of months to observe our nearest giant galaxy. That's the Andromeda Galaxy, M31 it's the 31st object in Charles Messier's catalog it lies between Pegasus and Cassiopeia and there are two ways to find it we call, sort of call it star hopping so let me tell you what to do uh, perhaps the most obvious is to start with the square of pegasus and find the top left hand or at least the 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 the, the upper left star depending on the orientation it's actually called alpha andromedae and we start there we move in the same direction as the square, the the top line of the square, to one relatively bright star, not too far away. You then sort of tilt round to the right a bit, maybe up slightly, and go the same distance to another bright star. At that point, you turn sharp right. And you should see one relatively bright, not that not as bright star not far away at sort of ninety degrees from the direction you've been going. If you carry on the same distance as you've just come, you then should see a little fuzzy glow, which is the constellation Andromeda. And from a really dark sky with a good pair of binoculars, say eight by forty, ten by fifty you can make out not just the central bright core, but also some of the arms and the structure around it. It's a lovely thing to see. Now, if Pegasus is a bit low, that's a slightly harder thing to do, but in which case, uh, Cassiopeia should be visible. And earlier I mentioned um, the fact is a W. If you take the right-hand uh, part of that W, that basically forms a V, and regard that as an arrow... Just below that, on the 1st of October, is going to be Comet Hartley. But if you follow down in that direction with binoculars, you should come across the Andromeda galaxy as well. So that's a couple of ways of finding it. it I, I love looking at it and other galaxies. I mean, when you do, it means the photons that are actually interacting with your retina are you to see it, left there, in this case, about 2.5 million years ago, you are literally looking back into time.
4: Thanks for that, Ian. And from the other hemisphere, here's John Field.
0: Spring is a time of change in our evening sky in the southern hemisphere. The winter constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are descending in the west, and we see our summer constellations of Orion, Taurus and Canis Major rising in the east. At this time of year, there are a number of star clusters visible in the night sky with binoculars or small telescopes. Some appear as loose groupings of stars, and other appears as fuzzy golf ball shapes. The loose clusters are known as open or galactic clusters. These clusters are formed from clouds of interstellar dust and gas, as the cloud collapses under the pull of gravity, they fragment into smaller clouds that form individual stars. Depending on the amount of mass in the cloud, the number and type of stars formed will vary. In most clusters, a few very large stars will form first, along with a large number of smaller stars following behind. Once the gas has either formed into stars or been blown away by stellar winds, star formation ends. Eventually, the stars in a cluster drift apart and take their own path around the galaxy. Open clusters are found along the plane of our galaxy. Globular clusters appear as dense condensations of stars that may number in the hundreds of thousands or even millions. Their orbits are not confined to the plane of the galaxy, and they form a spherical halo around the galaxy. And there are about 150 of them discovered orbiting around our galaxy. The southern sky is host to a number of globular clusters, the two most famous are Omega Centauri and 47 Tucanae. Omega Centauri is visible to the unaided eye as a fuzzy star, not far from the bright star Beta Centauri. In binoculars you will see a central condensation with the outlying stars becoming thinner and fainter. Small telescopes reveal fainter stars and lovely chains of stars. It is about 17,000 light years away. 47 Tucanae is close to the small Magellanic cloud and is easily seen in binoculars and can be seen with the unaided eye from a dark location. It is closer at about 160,000 light years distance. It is more condensed than Amiga Centauri and comparing them both reveal differences in their shapes and structure. Other great southern globs are NGC 6397 in Ara, M4 and M80 in Scorpius and M20 and M22 in Sagittarius. Although many are visible in binoculars, a 6 inch or larger telescope will reveal more detail. Most star atlases or astronomy magazines will show a number of easily found globular clusters that you can find. Most globular clusters contain a single population or age of stars. This indicates that globular clusters form in one intense period of star formation, after which no further stars were formed. It is thought that globular clusters are the original building blocks of many galaxies. Omega Centauri is an exception though, as it appears to be the core of a small galaxy that has merged with the Milky Way. The star cluster R136 in the Large Magellanic Cloud is thought to be a globular cluster in the making, so not all globular clusters are incredibly old. There is still much to be learned about these interesting objects. From objects that are thousands of light years away, we come closer to home to look for the elusive zodiacal light. Spring evenings in New Zealand are the best time to observe this phenomenon. Seen in the west as a faint conical glow after sunset, the zodiacal light, is formed by the scattering of sunlight from the dust that orbits along the ecliptic. During the early evening in the spring, the ecliptic is highly inclined to the horizon and the Milky Way runs north to south leaving the western sky dark after sunset. This means that the faint glow of the zodiacal light can hopefully be seen. The best chance to observe is on an evening with little or no moon and well away from city lights. Scan along the western horizon and look for a change in brightness from the darker background sky. Averted vision may help to spot it. It will also show up in a 30-second image with a camera on a tripod. In the evening sky at this time of year, rising up in the east, is the planet Jupiter as the lovely golden star. And nearby will be the planet Uranus, which is easily spotted in a small telescope or binoculars. Well, that's all from the Dodcast here at Carter Observatory for October. I hope you have clear skies and good observing. Thanks for
1: that, John. And now we move on to the part of the show where we put in everything that didn't fit anywhere else. So, uh, starting off at the beginning of October, the 4th to the 10th of the month, is World Space Week. And you can check the website for any events near you at worldspaceweek.org.
3: Next up, I've got a really cool image of two of Saturn's moons that's been taken by the Cassini spacecraft. And this is the moons Dione and Rhea, which are very similar in size. And the way they've lined up is one on top of the other. And they look like they're joined up. It looks really weird. Um, it was taking invisible light on the 27th of July, 2010. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes.
4: Okay, so this week has been a busy week, as well as the the EVN meeting in Manchester and the opening of the Chilbolton LOFAR station it was also the groundbreaking for the new visitor centre at Jodrell Bank on Monday. Um, so hopefully the new visitor centre uh, will launch in summer of 2011, um, but construction has finally started, so we'll wait and see what happens.
1: Fantastic. And uh, so if you are planning to go to Jodrell Bank over the winter, just be aware that you'll be able to go around the Arboretum and probably the telescope paths, but there won't be a visitor centre there when you are there so just bear that in mind
3: if you're planning to go around the
4: arboretum i'd bring you wellies
1: <laughs> yes
3: <laughs>
4: and we should probably also say
3: i think that the opening times are 11 till 4 over this period
1: so now we move on to the feedback section and after our plea last time for more feedback we have indeed got a lot more feedback so starting with uh, email jerry in vegas has said that he drives 10 hours a day And all he really does is listen to podcasts and audiobooks. Just wanted to let you know, I really enjoy and appreciate the Jodcasts. They are a lot more in-depth than most other astronomy podcasts, and just right in length. And Neil BW says, I have a keen interest in astronomy. A new listener to the Jodcast and started listening last month, so thank you very much. Welcome to the Jodcast. Uh, But he's gutted that JodPub is on the 25th of September and has made other arrangements. Will there be another...
3: We'll let you know after. Yeah, we, we, we can't really say right now because it's not happened yet. But there's been quite a lot of comments from people saying that they couldn't make it. I think next time we definitely need to plan it more in advance. So on the forum, we've had comments from Joda the Oak, Earth Unit and Rapid Eye. So thanks for
4: those. And also from Works Paul, who we presume is Worcestershire, Worcestershire Paul, um, who says, Another great podcast. I was enthralled by Tim's answers to Ask an Astronomer. It's great to have such mind-boggling subject matter explained in a relatively easy-to-understand manner. Um, and we've also had a few new people who've introduced themselves on the forum, so hello to those, and please,
3: yes, join in, and welcome. We've had a few comments on Facebook, so thanks to Kevin Yanowski, I really hope I pronounced that right, and Robert Siddy for your comments on there, and sorry to the people who sent us messages on Facebook saying they couldn't come to JobPub. Seriously, guys, yeah. next time we need to plan it in advance. <laughs> And also, thanks on Twitter to everyone who retweeted or tweeted about JobPub. And also, I really hope that Reese Pie brings us cake, because she promised us on Twitter. Looking forward to
1: that. If it's on Twitter, it's official. And over at iTunes, we've had a couple more um, reviews. Tenacious24, thank you very much, on the US store, saying, very informative, more on current events in astronomy. Very entertaining. And look to Windward in the UK iTunes store. Said uh, it's a good mix of cutting edge science, but kept understandable everyday astronomy. That's what that's what we like to hear. We like to hear how you are um, enjoying the show.
3: I also like their comment when they said, I love the way the presenters are not too scripted. <laughs> <laughs> not too scripted. We're not scripted at all. They are definitely real astronomers. Yes, we are definitely
4: real. And yes. we are astronomers. Apart from Dave. Well, I, oh, sh- he's an honorary astronomer. Okay. I, I, I Ex-astronomer. Went
3: to the- ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have Megan here to gang up on you, Dave. <laughs> it's
4: not fair. Oh.
1: So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
3: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
1: On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook.
3: And on YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
1: So that brings this issue of the Jodcast to the end. Thank you very much to Anthony Rushton and Anne Zabladov for the interviews.
4: So until next time, Jod on. Bye. Bye bye.
2: So David, have you found a planet yet? No? Good. Welcome to
3: Academia.
1: <laughs> Jen, give it up.
3: What? How did you get there?
1: The Jugcast studio is not that big. Oh, and thanks for giving me too much to drink at Jodpub. Now I see why you wanted me to wake up groggy.
3: Oh, okay. The podcast, which you have just listened to, is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five young astronomers, in particular...
4: Gen- and you can put that away too.
1: Young Jodcasters.